Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello, this is Stuart Roberts, founder of Haircuts for Homeless, and welcome to the Hear Me, See Me podcast. I'm going to be talking to people who are truly inspirational to me, some you may have heard of, and some you haven't, but you really need to hear their story. This is Stuart from Hear Me, See Me podcast. And today, I'm so excited about this. I'm getting to meet someone I've been fascinated with. I'm old enough to remember it so well that lived through it at the same time. Um, Someone who's got an amazing story that happened in the late 80s um, of being held hostage. Um, And we'll we'll talk about that immediately. But that's uh, today I'm talking to Terry Waits, CB. How are you today, sir? Well, I'm fine. I'm a bit cold because my central heating broke down uh, about a couple of hours before this meeting. And uh, I've just got it fixed. I've got a very good plumber. He's a good man. And uh, he came round and within a few minutes he'd fixed it. If anybody knows anything about it, he put in a new capacitor in, whatever that is. I have the clue. <laughs> Normally they come round and they just press a switch, and you know, like I've just accidentally knocked. Absolutely, it. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you anyway, we're all up and running now, and I'm yeah. feeling a bit warmer. Yeah, I'm glad you are. I'm freezing, um, but then you know, it was appropriate because we're talking about homeless people later on, and uh, you know, you got to feel for them. And this, I always think to myself, whenever I feel, whenever I feel cold, I think I'm not as cold as a lot of people out there, and it always makes me feel a bit better. <laughs> You're absolutely right. I mean. Yeah. Uh, as you probably know, well, you, you mentioned it at the beginning, I spent five years in total solitary confinement, but I'll come to that in a moment. Um, what I did, first of all, I mean, I've always had a, a certain sympathy for people who find themselves on the edge of life. And I suppose when I was young, um, I really had a desire to try and do something to make this it's a rather sad world in many respects, a better place. Um, I worked in Africa, uh, took my wife and family to Africa and was three years in Uganda. And there I witnessed the Amin coup. And it opened my eyes because it was the first time in my life that I'd seen real brutality and nastiness and how unpleasant people can be. Now, I do not want to say for one moment that all Ugandans or Africans are like that, they're not. But when law and order breaks down in any society, people behave in the most appalling way. We've seen that in America, the storming of the uh, Capitol building. Um, You see it in any community. And law and order broke down in, in, well, it was broken down by a bit in Uganda. Um, For the first time in my life, I saw someone um, beaten to death before my eyes. I tried to stop them, but they said, if you don't get out of the way, we'll shoot you. Um, so that, that was that. You know, between Kampala, which is the capital city uh, of uh, Uganda, and a place called Jinja, a small town, about 60 miles, the River Nile runs about halfway along that journey. And there's a dam there called the Owen Falls Dam. And can you believe it? That dam 
became blocked with the bodies of people that had been thrown into the dam, who'd been murdered. Now, Uganda, really, the people there suffered terribly. And uh, I, I, I've been back, I still keep in touch with them. My former African colleague just died recently. However, when I left Uganda, then I went to work in every pretty well troubled spot of the world. Um, there's hardly a, a, a troubled area that I didn't work in. And then I was recruited by the Archbishop of Canterbury <coughs> to, <coughs> excuse me, to be his special envoy, uh, to be his advisor on uh, uh, foreign affairs, on matters that occurred outside the United Kingdom. I was to travel with him. And then, of course, hostage cases came to my attention. And my belief has always been that if anybody approaches the church for help, regardless of whether they've got religious belief or not, that should never enter into it, or whatever confession they are. They should be helped if the church can do anything to help them. And when people came to Lambeth Palace and said, you know, we've, we're in distress, we've got someone taken hostage, we don't know what to do, we're not getting any help from government or whatever, can you help us? I remember saying to the Archbishop, yes, sure, we should do something. So to cut a very long story short, I it was involved in getting hostages out of Iran. I went to Iran. I negotiated with Revolutionary Guards. I got into that notorious prison, the Avin prison, and was able to get somebody out of there. And by totally legal means, just by talking to people, by trying to understand people, not by using force. I also um, went to Libya on another occasion, negotiated directly with Colonel Gaddafi. I got on okay with him, got hostages released there. And, uh, you know, a number of different places. And then Beirut came up. And I really didn't want to take... Um, that time and on. I mean, there were a lot of hostages in Beirut, American, British, German, all sorts of nationalities there. Their families came and they persuaded me after about three visits to be involved. And I've got the belief that I knew it was going to be a long job. And I said, I can't promise. Uh, I can't promise anything. Never can in that sort of business. But I said, I'll do my best for you. And my belief is that if you take up a case for a grieving family, you stick with it. You know, you don't let go when the going gets tough for you or for others. So I got out to Beirut. I met with revolutionary guards, uh, with um, Hezbollah, rather, under pretty difficult circumstances. Uh, I was able to assist in the release of a couple of hostages. And then uh, the whole thing blew up in my face because of uh, inappropriate political intervention. There was a, um, the time Iran was fighting the Iran-Iraq war, and Iran needed to win that war. And unknown to me, an American agent by the name of Colonel Oliver North went to Iran, and Iran was supporting uh, Lebanon with arms and weapons in its uh, internal fighting. He went to Iran and said, look, if you pressurize your um, uh, clients in Beirut to release hostages, we will provide you with weapons. And that deal went through. Weapons were supplied. One hostage was released, David Jacobson. 
Now, I'd had no luck after the getting the, the first two out. I couldn't make any progress. Jacobson thought I'd, re, I'd been responsible for his release, but I, I couldn't understand what I'd done. Then the bombshell broke. Um, it was revealed in the press that arms had been supplied for the release of hostages. And this information was meant to be kept top secret. It was kept certainly kept secret from me. And uh, it really was blown all over the press. It said it was released by a dissident Ayatollah. And that's, so, that's what happened. But the worst part of it, from my point of view, was when I was being linked with North, I was being accused of arms dealing, something about which I'd have absolutely nothing to do with, nothing at all. And the Archbishop said to me, he said, look, you've got to drop this now, you can't go back. I said, I've got to go back. I said, if I don't go back, I'm going to be um, seen as duplicitous and the church is going to be accused of double dealing, of saying don't deal in arms on one hand and yet behind the backs of people uh, condoning it. I said, we can't condone that, we mustn't do it. Reluctantly, he said, after I said I'd going to resign if you didn't allow me to go back, I had to resign and go on my own. He said, very well. So I went back. Now, the situation there was this, that Hezbollah in um, Lebanon were, were suspicious of what was going on in Iran. Why was Iran dealing with America? And they said to themselves, well, simple. All we've got to do is Terry Waite knows the Americans. We'll take him and see what he knows. Now, I didn't know that. I didn't know that was in their mind, although I suspected it was a very dangerous situation. Uh, I met with them. They told me that I could go and see a hostage who was about to die. And I said, look, if I come with you, you're going to keep me for the rest of my life <laughs> or for a good long period. They said, no, we won't. I said, give me 24 hours to think about it. So they said, all right. <coughs> so I went away. And after about, after advice from, asked for advice from different people, some said, don't touch it with a barge pole. Others said, you'd probably be all right. Uh, I, and some said, well, yes, you've been given the promise. It'll be kept. My own feeling was very dubious. I wasn't at all sure. And now, don't think that I'm full of altruism. I'm not. I believe that when you do things for other people, you're very often doing something for yourself, consciously or unconsciously. Yeah. Uh, I don't think that's a bad thing, but I think it's a good thing to know it. That, that's yeah. what, and my feeling was this. If that man dies, and I haven't got the courage of my conviction to go and see him before he dies... I'm going to have to live with my conscience for the rest of my life. So I went back. And well, that's it. That was it. Bingo. I was captured. I was thrown into uh, an underground cell. I slept on the floor. Uh, I um, had no natural light. Uh, if I was in an upstairs building, metal shutters were put in front of the windows, so no natural light came in. I was chained by the hands and feet for 23 hours and 50 minutes a day. I was interrogated. Uh, I was beaten, uh, tortured, and I had a mock execution. Um, and uh, I never 
had any conversation with anybody for five years. I slept on the floor for five years and was chained up for five years. And it was a, a pretty hard experience. But um, I was able to survive it because, first of all, I knew what I'd done and I was happy with, the, with what I'd done, actually, uh, at least not betraying myself, even though it cost me a, an awful lot. And at the same time, of course, I was pretty fed up what has happened for my family, for my wife, for my children, having to put them through that. But then that's how it is. That's how it was. Um, at the end of five years, um, they released me. Uh, the whole thing was, was over and I, I was released and came back to this country. Now, it wasn't all... <coughs> excuse me. wasn't all negative because I believe that you know, so many people have had worse times than myself, with that, there's no doubt. And suffering is universal. We all suffer, everybody suffers, but some people suffer more than others, often through no fault of their own. They've had a poor upbringing, they've had difficulties in the past, they've had made mistakes, whatever, you know. But I always believe that suffering needn't destroy. Out of it, something creative can usually emerge. One of the good things that happened from that experience for me was this. As I told you at the beginning, I've always had um, sympathy for people who find themselves in difficult situations. But uh, that sympathy now was changed to empathy. Sympathy is to be sorry for. Empathy is to know what it's like, to know what it's like to be kicked around, to know what it's like to have no, no value or being seen to have no value to know what it's like to be hungry, to know what it's like to be cold, to know what it's like to sleep on the floor, to know what it's like to suffer indignity and to be tortured and to actually be you know, at the end of, a, end of a gun, being told you've got, you've got five hours to live. I know what it's like. And that made me uh, even more understanding of the plight of many homeless people because... Uh, Many homeless people um, have had spend, you know, through, often through sometimes mistakes on their part, sometimes through no fault of their own, sometimes that's how circumstances are, find themselves on the streets without a home, without a place. And I felt, well, I really must double my efforts to try and do something for people like that and for people in prison, as well as others in different parts of the world. And so... I helped start Emmaus for the Homeless in this country. Emmaus is a, a remarkable community which enables people who've um, been on the streets or been homeless to have a home, uh, to come into a community, to work according to their capacity and to begin to get back, get their lives back together again. And it's a model that works. It really does work. Because one of the things we do which is something that really, uh, believe it or not, haircutting is important. It helps people regain their dignity as human beings. And one of the things that you sometimes can lose when you're on the streets, uh, understandably, is you lose your dignity and you're treated as worthless. Now, when someone comes into a community, we have shops, we have uh, retailers, uh, retail shops, and they're interacting with the public in a different way now. They're not now the recipients of charity. 
they're there to provide a service, not just to the customers, but to the wider community. Just a couple of days ago, I was up in um, uh, up in um, Mosley in Manchester, where I had my hair cut by Jackie, the great, great hairdresser. <laughs> Wonderful lady who cut my hair, and at the same time, as uh, she looked rather fantastic. I don't quite yeah. know what... Uh, <laughs> What what she was wearing? We don't but, always uh, dress like that. I've never dressed yeah, like that. Absolutely. <laughs> but you know, she well, they were up there at this mayor's was celebrating twenty five years yeah. of Mosley, and it was a terrific occasion because the whole local community uh, came out. The deputy prime minister, uh, uh, opposition prime minister, um, came came along. The local MP came along. Um, the councillors came along. But more importantly, ordinary members of the local community came along and the mayor's companions were there uh, supporting them. To see the transformation is just just remarkable. We started off in Cambridge. I opened the first community over 30 years ago now with just one porter cabin. And today we've got about 40, 40 thriving communities. And that's due to homeless people who've made it they're the ones that make it they're the ones that make the community they've got abilities and talents that you would never dream of i mean you know you should never ever pass someone in the street and say that person's worthless that person has got a whole lifetime a whole background of experience and somehow when they gain some more positive understanding of their own situation of themselves begin to make that contribution more fully into society and live happier lives. That's important, to live a happier life. You don't have to need to be fabulously wealthy to live a happy life, but you do need to be at ease with yourself and with your neighbour. I've always said, Emmaus, it's not a charity. It is a charity officially, but it's not a charity in one sense because when someone comes in, they're asked to work according to their capacity mm. because it's not, they're not just receiving a handout. It's not just a dole out. It's a procedure, it's a, it's a community that enables people to get back on their feet. I've been with it over 30 years now. I'm getting old now. I'm 83 now. And um, I don't know how much longer I've got. But I can tell you one thing. Uh, I've, I've got many, many good friends uh, in the mess. All of them have been homeless. And we greet each other like brothers when we meet each other across yeah. the country. Yeah. Great community. And uh, the work that has been done by, by simple things, a very simple thing. You say, what, haircutting? Does that make any difference? Yeah. It makes a big difference. Yeah. It enables someone to have at least a tidy appearance, yeah. help them in their positive image and help them on their way back into a full and more satisfying life. Yeah. I've, I've, I've got a few questions because as you're talking, things are going into my mind. Um, and just going back to when your experience, when you, I remember at the time, I, I, I was, we're talking like 30-odd years ago now, aren't we? So it's late. Long late, time, late. yeah. Yeah, and, and I, was, I was a younger, angry man at that time. And um, I remember seeing a lot of things where you said you didn't hold any 
grudge. Or, I, I remember you saying it, uh, even it's a long time ago, it's a bit shaped, shaded in my mind. But that No, you, you're quite right. What, you, I, what I said was, I don't, I don't hold grudge against, against these people. I don't agree with what they're doing. I don't agree no. with hostage taking. But there's one important thing to say here. You've got to understand why people behave as they behave. What has provoked them into that? What has got them? <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> what has got them into that situation? I've got a rock cold, as you can gather. It's like you get um, let, me start, let me just start a little bit again. <laughs> You've got to be able to get to the root of the issue and say, why are you behaving as you're behaving? Yes. I mean, many of these young fellas who come into uh, terrorist groups, they've been the bottom of the pile, yes. uh, many of them, not necessarily economically, but religiously, socially, one way or another. Yes. They come into a group like uh, the, the kidnapping groups, of the past, immediately they enter, they have a sense of identity, a sense of belonging, a sense of worth. And that's what, you know, that's what people need. They need to be valued. Yeah. And there's a good example of this, but once they're in, they're caught. I mean, yeah. there was a case where uh, hostages were receiving very poor food. They complained about it. And the the, the head of the hostage group went to the captain, one of the uh, uh, young men who was looking after these hostages, uh, and um, said what, what was going on, and he discovered that he, the, the young man who was looking after the hostages had been given money to buy food. He pocketed half and used the other half on food, so the hostages were suffering. So they took that man out and they shot him. They said, if you'll betray us in small matters like that, you know, what will you do if someone yeah. comes along with a big bribe? But the point being, once they're in that sort of a group, there's no way out for them. And it's like, you know, you can make a parallel there between that and homeless people. Once, once some people get into that way of living and sleeping on the tables or sleeping in shop doorways, yeah. it's damn difficult to get out of it. Very, very hard. Yeah. Very hard indeed. And... Um, you shouldn't give up. You should provide people with the opportunities and try and understand why. That's what I was getting at. Why are they behaving as they're behaving? And try and unlock the situation. We're too quick these days to be aggressive. Yeah. We're too quick to go in and fight and yeah. think we're going to win battles by fighting. We don't. No. We lose them. And the enormous cost um, is placed on individuals and on the innocent of women yeah. and children. Dreadful. One of, one of my favourite sayings is you need to surrender to win. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, that took, I could never have got that when I, when I was younger. And at the time I'm talking about when you went through your ordeal, um, me being a very angry young man, you know, and if I can tell you, because I wanted to talk about forgiveness, because forgiveness is a fascinating um, and valuable thing that I <clears throat> always think about. Um I was, uh, when I was a young man, I, when I was a kid, sorry, I was a very young kid, I was abused by a man who lived nearby. And um, it twisted my thinking. And then as I got into adulthood, I got um, alcohol, I was a, an alcoholic and I was taking drugs and all of these things. And my resentment and my anger was feeding, feeding my 
um, aggression, and it was and it was actually making me work. It was it was harming me over and over again. And it wasn't until I got to the age of 44 and I got into recovery that I, I've seen many counsellors and, and, and professors and, you know, um, and I would never put the blame of my, the consequences of my drinking. It was always because it's understandable that I would because of what happened to me. And it wasn't well, until I looked at forgiving that then I could let it go and it had no more effect. You know, I went back to Beirut uh, to meet with my captors some years later. Yeah. And we had a reconciliation. Yeah. You know, they said they were, they apologized for what they'd done. Yeah. And, uh, okay, you know, um, but going back, going on to anger, um, I, I wrote a poem about anger. And it's very short. I can remember it now. And anger is like a consuming fire seeking all whom it may destroy. Do not extinguish the flames totally, but calm yourself by the gentle glow of the embers. In other words, saying yeah. it's a normal human emotion. We all have it. Yeah. It's provoked by various things. You can never get rid of it completely. No. <clears throat> but what you can do is you can take it and turn it and enable it to be used constructively to warm yourself. Yeah. And... Uh, I think that's what you were able to do uh, in your life, so it seems. Yeah. yeah. And from that came an understanding of myself and gradually I healed and the, the process of helping other people helps me constantly, you know, and that, that's why, and as you said, there's no such thing as an altruistic act really because I get so much from what I do that um, it, it, it heals me. And, and, you know, I get much more than anything that I give. I get back more so. Yeah, yeah. And another thing that I was going to say about was, the, you know, it's really totally, when you talk about Emmaus, I, I mean, I, I, funny enough, we we're, we're eight years old this, this week, Haircuts for Homeless, oh. and I started on my own in Romford in uh, the Salvation Army. I was just going over there talking to guys about alcoholism, trying to help them, and then I saw a guy in America making over homeless people with a haircut. And I thought, oh, this week I'll go and I'll do the same. And it turned into that a few people came to help, you know, and then on Monday we opened our 80th project and we've got over 600 volunteers and we've now given over 50,000 haircuts. Amazing. Um, it, it, yeah, and it's a wonderful thing. Uh, but so obviously all around, we now have the UK and we're in Ireland and I've been to some, I could, I could write a review on homelessness because I've been everywhere and seen them all. Uh, and they vary from sort of somewhere like um, uh, a residential unit to a food, just a, a basic soup kitchen. And the first time I went to a mass, I was blown away by the positive attitude of it and the fact of, um, I remember the guy who was running it at the time and he said to me, no, we, we rebuild people. You know, yeah. we rebuild the furniture, we're, re we're rebuilding people. We're not putting a plaster on, we're actually helping them heal. And the, the fact that you had the the shop, because it was mostly I first went to, and it was the, the lovely furniture in there. I recommend anyone in the local area, if you want some furniture, go and have a look. They've got the beautifully restored furniture. Um, and then, so the idea is someone comes in, a companion comes in, 
and they then learn the skills of uh, either rebuilding the furniture, so those skills, they learn to serve in the shop, um, they learn all these different things at the, at the same time that they're a resident and they have to, you know, they have to behave themselves because sometimes they're not, but it gets them an idea of responsibility, so they all live together. Um, I just thought it was the, the, the first one that I'd seen was that was doing the whole package that was really caring for people. And I think, I believe we're in about eight or nine now, and I'm sure that over the next few years, we'll probably have our service in all of them, you know. Um, and, and I just really love the principles of what it does. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's absolutely true. And uh, there are some great, great, um, great people working in immerse. And, you know, almost all of them are volunteers. We've got very few paid staff. Yeah. Almost all volunteers. And that furniture is donated by the public. It's renovated and put to good use. Yeah. And so I, I would encourage anybody who's listening to this podcast, you know, if you've never been to an MS, just look it up on the web and uh, uh, you'll find one nearby, hopefully. I mean, my aim has been to have an MS in every major centre before I die. So it's a good incentive to keep living for a while or two. That's it. Say, we've got about 40. It's so interesting because I, I say uh, my kids. I think at one point my kids thought I was terminally ill when I hadn't told them because I kept saying we haven't got long, <laughs> we haven't got long. I said I've got so much to do, and it was almost <laughs> I thought we'd see the beginning of the end, but it wasn't that. It was the fact that you know it's such a such a finite time that we're here that uh, to make a difference. And and my legacy, as as you'll understand, was it wasn't to be the Stuart Roberts charity or anything like that. It was haircuts for homeless, and I want it to go on. So yeah. I want to get to as much of, of, of the UK as I can while I'm here, but then I want it to, you know, to, to carry on after I'm gone. <clears throat> That's really important to me. And um, Absolutely. And the hairdressing industry has been brilliant in, in coming on board and helping, and the people like you met Jackie. Jackie's my queen of the north. So that, that's another thing I wanted to say, that I wanted to reiterate what you've said and say that Jackie is my real queen of the north, and she's opened, despite a lot of personal challenges she's got, she's opened so many projects all around Manchester, the, the, the north. She, she, she went into Liverpool, but now we've got another lady, Kerry, who she brought on board, and she takes care of quite a few in Liverpool, Sheffield, and um, we're probably going to use your network to spread in other parts. We're already all over the UK, but... You know, my my. Whenever I get like someone wants to go to Cambridge, I'm going to say, look, go to Emmaus first. Try them first, because it's it, it fits so well together. What we do and what what you do, you know, and, and it's no, <laughs> absolutely. I must say, uh, I got a picture today sent me of my myself having a haircut with Jackie. She's cutting my hair, and I came up with a caption. You might want to use it. Yeah, I... she cut my hair and trimmed my beard, and I thought of a caption: "Another close shave for Terry Wade." It's going to be used, and it's going to be, and I'll probably use it for the podcast. You know, like this will be the introduction. Another close. Yeah. Shave. yeah, I thought it was great. Yeah, yeah, you said that to me. And uh, anyway, there we are. But that's that's uh, that's it. I just like to congratulate you and say thank how you. nice it was to meet some of your volunteers and some of yeah. your team. Good to have a chat with you. Yeah. I'm sorry I've been a bit full of cold. I've just got it developed over the last couple of days. No, I so apologies to those who are listening to this and 
who yeah. heard me coughing and spluttering. I'm not about to die yet. I've got a year no, or two. Yet. Uh, yeah, good, good. Congratulations, so am I, hopefully. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I appreciate your time. What we'll do, we'll add the, the links to Emmaus and anything else you want to, you know, you want us to add on there as well. Um, but, yeah, I really appreciate it. And uh, please, anyone, links to your books, because I believe I did read that you, you the book, one of the books you wrote, you had no pen or paper in them. Yeah, that's right. Take it on trust. Yeah. I did it in my head. Yeah. And it's amazing yeah. that you could come out then and it was all in there and they probably repeated it and repeated well, it. as you can see, I've got a big head. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> well, look, I'll let you go and I appreciate, you, you know, I appreciate your time. And, um, you know, thank you so much. And uh, I, everyone out there, you must read this man's works, follow up about Emmaus, Find out about it. We need one in every city, and um, yeah. Uh, well, thanks, so Stuart. It's been a it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye.